aka Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of Nancy. Angry gets shit done. Now you may be seated. This week we watched American Gods, Episode 8, Come to Jesus. So what did you think? This feels like a weird finale episode to me. It doesn't feel very connected to the rest of the season in a lot of ways, like tonally, some of the characters seem off to me. But I really like the way that it lands. I really like the way that it sets up season two. But I feel like setting up that hook took over the story. And uh, we're going to get into it. What did you think? I thought it had some good moments, but I actually didn't think it really felt like a season finale. Um, And I think in general, I couldn't quite put my finger on why I didn't like as much as previous episodes. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But before we get to that, let's talk about this week's creators. This episode was directed by Floria Sigismondi. She's mostly directed music videos, including The Beautiful People by Marilyn Manson. She's also directed episodes of The Handmaid's Tale and Daredevil. The teleplay was written by Becca Brunstetter, along with showrunners Brian Fuller and Michael Green. Becca is also a producer on the show and has written for Switched at Birth and This Is Us. And let's recap what happened this week. Mr. Wednesday and Shadow visit Mr. Nancy to get new suits made. While making the clothes, Nancy tells them the story of Bilquis. In the ancient world, Bilquis was powerful and worshipped by many. No king could resist her. Over time, she had to adapt, though. She was forced to leave her native land, but had an even harder time in America, until the technical boy offered her a new way to be worshipped. In the present, Shadow and Wednesday arrive at the mansion of the goddess Easter. A crowd of Jesuses has gathered for Easter's festival day, and Wednesday tries to remind her that this day is hers. Meanwhile, the technical boy sends Bilquis on a mission. Back at the mansion, Wednesday offers Easter an alliance and reveals his plan. Laura and Sweeney arrive. Laura meets Easter and asks for resurrection, but Easter cannot raise someone killed by a god. Media arrives at the mansion and warns Easter about listening to Wednesday. Laura tortures Sweeney into admitting that Wednesday wanted her dead and makes him reveal the rest of Wednesday's plan. Outside, Wednesday confronts Media and kills her minions as a sacrifice to Easter. He reveals himself to Shadow as Odin and Shadow finds his faith. Easter reaches out with her power and spreads a famine across America. Meanwhile, Bilquis travels to the House on the Rock, either in defiance or obedience to the new gods. It's so long. Why is it so long? (laughs) There's a lot that happened. Yeah, there's way too much plot in this episode. 
but also like not that much plot. I don't know. It felt really. Um, There's a lot of zany bullshit that happens. <laughs> but it also feels so stationary. Like I feel like so much of this episode is just them sitting and talking at the party. Mm-hmm. And that was like part of the reason why the climax felt like a rap battle almost in a weird kind of way. <laughs> It's very weird. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> I feel like this started out as like like venting that we were going to cut out, but maybe we should side, just keep this in the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Normally, we have these like weird asides that we just like we know we're not going to make it into the real episode, and this one is just like, oh, it's too real. Okay. Um, <laughs> pulling back the curtain, y'all. Um, okay, so I guess I wanted to start by talking about Bilquis because I feel like this answers a lot of the questions we had about Bilquis earlier and like Mm -hmm. things that I wasn't comfortable with from a storytelling perspective. Like I didn't have any problems with the character, but just a little bit of the way that things were structured. Um, I'm glad that we got to see her wearing the jewel thing. I was like complaining about the museum scene earlier. And I think this totally redeems it on some level, right? In the sense that having seen this, if you go back and rewatch episode two, that scene will be really meaningful, but also like it just didn't work the first time for me. So on some level, you have to make a story that works the first time through. It can be better the second time through, but it has to still work the first time through. All kinds of stuff with Bilquis gets answered. Yeah, like you said, I think that um, the Bilquis story might be the best story in this entire episode. Yeah, I really liked it. I like that Nancy seems to be telling her story, but we continue to get it after he's done telling the story. And that adds to like the kind of disjointed flavor that this entire episode has in my mind. But I don't know if that bothered you at all. I don't know. It kind of worked for me. This is, I mean, I guess it's worth pointing out that this is a different kind of prologue than we've had before. Mm -hmm. I mean, when Mr. Ibis has been narrating stories in the past, it has been like very separate from the episode itself in just like a pure storytelling framework. Like it might be thematically related, but it's not a story that's being told in the story. It's just being told around the story. Um, And I did kind of like that sort of new approach and angle to it. I thought it was fun. Yeah. So this prologue comes to us like through Mr. Nancy, which is kind of interesting because in his pantheon from West Africa, he is literally the god of stories. His telling the story kind of makes sense in the way that it did for Mr. Ibis. You know how he was like the god of writing and the god of truth. And so it made sense for him to be able to like perceive Mad Sweeney's story from a distance and then record it. It feels like the same kind of thing in my opinion, for Anansi to sense Bilquis's story and then tell it at a distance. And maybe that's why he was able to tell the future before, too. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I don't really buy his sort of, like, 
story intuiting ability as allowing him to tell the future. I think I still only like the prologue of episode two as him being an unreliable narrator and falsely recalling Mm -hmm. what happened. It could be, right? Because he's kind of, there's like a weird thing there where he's being like incepted into that story somehow, you know, like it's his story, but through Mr. Ibis. Well, I just think that like Mr. Nancy probably came over on a slave ship. Maybe there was a slave revolt and the boat went down. Maybe it didn't, but this is sort of like, the story that he's inventing retrospectively for how he came to America. And it's like probably complete bullshit, but (laughs) I don't care. I love that. (laughs) That's the canon for our show. That's what happened. I mean, right. Cause like on a certain level, it doesn't matter if stories are really true. What matters is like how powerful they are and how they Mm -hmm. make us feel. So how does this Bilquis story make you feel like, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but I mean, let's, really dig into it because we start off here in a very ancient temple with a crazy orgy scene. Yeah. And I actually really loved the way the orgy scene was filmed. It was very sensual, but it didn't feel super exploitative or male gazy. I felt like the the focus visually was on sort of like a mass of writhing bodies as opposed to like genitals. Yeah. You know, it like it felt a little bit abstract and removed. It didn't seem like it was intended to arouse. Yeah. I guess. The whole thing's kind of creepy, like with the music and everything's in a slow yeah. motion a little bit. Yeah, you're right. And it. it and usually we're not real close up on those people. You're just kind of seeing all of them move at once. And it's eerie. So what did you think about them turning to black goo before she enveloped them in her vagina? As opposed <laughs> to in previous episodes where we saw her actually just enveloping people. Uh, you know what? I hadn't thought about. I mean, I thought it was super crazy. But I hadn't thought about the fact that... Yeah, that she's not just devouring their actual body. And maybe that indicates some kind of loss of power that she was able to kind of transfer them into some other easier to ingest state and then pull them inside. I have not really thought about this until you asked me this question. (laughs) This is a really good question. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't really make sense Mm -hmm. to me that her power would have changed like fundamentally so much between the two time periods that we see her in, except in that it would take a really long time for her to have to vagina (laughs) eat all those people one by one. (laughs) So maybe it's just like a quantity thing. Like she has the the power to do sort of like a bulk processing, but she doesn't always employ (laughs) it if she doesn't need to. Well, yeah. As as you were talking, I was kind of like the first thing that I'll do if, if I don't understand something in a story is I will kind of ask myself, OK, you've been hired to tell this story. How do you do it? And so like somebody says, we want an orgy scene with Bilquis where she eats everybody. And so it would be kind of like weird and silly to have her be like a, a Kirby video game where she just like inhales a bunch of people. like. <laughs> Or, or like Pac-Man, or, yeah, you know? Exactly. <laughs> like, that would be really weird. So this is, you know, maintains the creepiness and weirdness. 
you know, and keeps it yeah. kind of like scary a little bit. The story just demands that you maintain a certain tone to not lose people. And I, I will say, like, we're kind of laughing about this and stuff that I found it really effective when I was watching it. I was really invested in the Bilquis storyline. Yeah, I didn't even care that that king's head made no sense. Didn't care. It's really weird. But yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> when this scene starts, like we, before we get into the orgy and stuff, it gives us like a, a text that tells us the time and place. And it says it's in the temple of Baran. I'm assuming that's how you say it. Maybe Baran, because it's two separate words. I don't know. But that's a real place in Yemen. And uh, I looked this up. I'm, I didn't really know this, but it was interesting. That temple was built to honor the moon, which is how we start that thing off, right? It's like a red moon. And to me, when I saw that, I was like, oh, that looks like the same red moon that Media turned into when she was talking to the technical boy in the limousine. Was she giving him some kind of directive, like, go get Bilquis? Because they have a connection that we find out about in this episode. Yeah. But I don't know. That also could be about Shadow Moon. So I'm not sure, like, if it's just repeated imagery or they're not connected. But this place is real, and it was connected to the moon. I don't know if it's connected to Bilquis or the Queen of Sheba or anything like that. I couldn't find any information on that. This temple is in a ruins it seems like they were pulling from real world information and i always appreciate when the show does that yeah i really liked that and i really liked too when they showed the depiction of the we're sort of skipping around in time but when they showed the depiction of the temple being torn down Mm -hmm. it really is showing sort of like a multiplicity of views of islam and the role that misogyny and fear of sex play in religious oppression. That's a big part of the voiceover too, right? He keeps talking about yeah, and powerful women. I loved when Anansi said they grabbed the power they were too scared for a queen to have. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, that just shook me. I really loved it. Um, And yeah, and I think like one of the critiques that the right makes of the left right now is that basically like in the spirit of political correctness, we're embracing Islam too much and that it really is just like, you know, a toxic, terrible religion. And like, obviously I don't ascribe to that. And I think the show is taking like a really measured look and sort of like we have Salim on one hand and then, but we can also show like what happens when misogyny and religion run amok specifically in the form of Islam as well as, Christianity. Mm -hmm. I think also that part is really crunchy potentially in some other ways because I find it very convenient that the technical boy shows up not too long after her temple is destroyed. It's possible that they engineered that event to make her more vulnerable and willing to sign up. I mean, there's not direct evidence of that, but this could be a pattern of behavior that we're seeing from the new gods. Put somebody in a position where they're easily manipulated and then recruit them. Yeah, well, and I think it's so clear that the technical boy is basically playing the role of her pimp and being like super exploitative Mm -hmm. and terrible. The power in their relationship is just so unequal and manipulative. I love the way that they play it. It continues to make him 
a more and more sinister character. And it, it really like puts our sympathy with Vilquis. I also just want to take a minute to be really petty and talk about his hair. <laughs> like what was going on with that terrible wig? <laughs> oh, the- I understand. <laughs> I actually, so I love the teeth thing, right? Cause we see him get uh, like punched in the face by media's kiss mm-hmm. and lose his teeth. And so then he, shows up again with a grill, which I love. Mm-hmm. And I love that his hair is really different in every scene. I think it's sort of like a symbol of the way technology is like super trendy and always changing. And like, as soon as you get used to something, it's just like running ahead and your iPhone six is, you know, garbage and you have to get the next one or whatever. Yes. I loved his hairstyle later on at the Easter mansion, but oh my God, that wig was so bad. Yeah. You know the one I'm talking about. I mean, Uh yeah, yeah, you can't not know. (laughs) I was sort of like, no, as I was watching that, I was like, wait, did Media like rip some hair out when she punched his teeth out? Is that why he's wearing a terrible wig? But no, his hair was fine later on in the episode. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. That wig is a bad call in a way that is not like in character or does not serve to make his character like more of anything that's good. Like it's a bad choice. It's also just like not that trendy and cool. You know, if you're going to do something weird with his hair, you have to make it like wacky and fun, not just like... (laughs) It almost looked old-fashioned. Yes. Anyway, okay. (laughs) Done with that. Now I've got it out of my system. (laughs) The real thing that I wanted to talk to you about regarding Bilquis is her relationship with the Iranian woman that we meet in the club. Yeah. Because I feel like this is the first time that I've gotten the impression that Bilquis seems more attached to someone than just as someone she can consume for power. Like, I got the impression that there was some sort of real personal connection between them. I don't know. Did you get that impression too? Definitely. Yeah, because we see her a couple of times. And then I feel like, is she the same woman that's in the hospital later on? I mean, I don't know who it would be if it wasn't her. Right, exactly. Um, So this could be like a setup for a larger story. And it could also be, like I was saying before, that maybe her temple got hit on purpose to make her vulnerable. Perhaps this person who she cared about was also like something happened to her to isolate Bilquis and make her more vulnerable. And so, yeah, so when the camera is first zooming into the hospital bed, I paused the show so I could like look really quickly. And it does say that she's HIV positive. Oh, and the voiceover from Anansi says, but America too could take issue with a woman of power. It finds ways of cutting her down and punishing her for daring to be. So even her existence is like, yeah, that's interesting. Well, and I think it's drawing the connection between misogyny and Christianity and misogyny and Islam, right? Because like the Re- Iranian revolution was a lot about oppressing women and enforcing the sort of like very strict lack of sexuality Mm -hmm. and sort of like being more of like property of men and the way that the AIDS crisis was handled in the US was a lot of like mainstream sort of like Christian or like air quotes Christian people being like we don't care about these people their lives don't matter they deserve what they got 
because they're sexual sinners or whatever. Right. Yeah, th- this is reaping what you sow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because they like they left Iran to try and get away from that misogyny and then ended up getting kind of hit with it in the U.S. I mean, I think you can argue that a fear of homosexuality is in some ways like related to misogyny and that it's like you're not performing your gender role in the very strict way that you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. So if you're interested in learning more about the emergence of AIDS in the US in the 1980s, there's a really good HBO movie called And the Band Played On that's based on a book by Randy Schultz. Um, And it really shows how much the Reagan administration just like didn't give a shit and Mm. was willing to just let thousands of people die from this disease because their lives didn't matter. And we know from before that that's something that was on Brian Fuller's mind, you know, growing up in the eighties and being gay. So this is an issue that he cares about quite a bit. And so it's not um, surprising to find it sneak into the story. And I think that this, like talking about all of this, I feel more and more like this is definitely a story that's going to come back in the second season. And we're going to find out more about what exactly went on between these two. Yeah. This episode makes her so much more interesting. I think she's not just simply villainous or monstrous. She's very sympathetic and, She has all these layers to her that are really interesting. Yeah. And it's not just a gender thing either, right? Because we've seen Bilquis consume women before in the same sort of like perfunctory way. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I just described vagina eating as perfunctory, but, um, (laughs) you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't like an intense emotional connection for her. You're right. Perfunctory vagina eating, whatever. Um, I did want to say real quick that one of the things that I really love about the Bilquis part and the Anansi part that we get up front here is the music. We've talked before about that Brian Reitzel is kind of creating musical cues or themes for different characters. And so when we open up, we get the same kind of uh, saxophone, kind of jazz-inflected melody that we got from episode two. And also with Bilquis we get this very eerie like long i'm not sure what what instrument is being used but this very like eerie music that's always behind her uh, when she's consuming people that's in the temple i did appreciate the musical connection yeah i totally noticed anansi's theme and i actually didn't notice bilquis's theme so i'll have to go back and watch it again before we do our season one wrap-up show and really pay more attention to that I think, yeah, it settles you right into the Bilquist stuff. Like, a, you have, like, a Pavlovian response that you're not even aware of, where you're like, okay, Bilquist is going to eat some people with her vagina. <laughs> like, this is the music. The more I watch these episodes, the closer we look at them. His music is essential to the show in a lot of different ways. It's funny. I feel like such a, like, uh, film music nerd, but I just have to say, I was like a fan of Hans Zimmer before he made it big. I thought <laughs> the Gladiator soundtrack was amazing. I like being on the, the leading edge with uh, Brian Reitzel too. I think if Hans Zimmer is the next John Williams, I think Brian Reitzel is the next Hans Zimmer. <laughs> I love that evolutionary chart you just made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I know that there's, there's probably people listening who are big fans of Hannibal, 
and are like, you're just now finding out about Brian Reitzel, but neither of us watched Hannibal. I know that yeah. he did the scoring for that. Yeah, maybe we can do just like a one-off bonus episode of like season one of Hannibal or something. We probably should, yeah, at some point. So in the book, there's a connection between the technical boy and Bilquis. I'm not going to spoil it at all. But I I think it's interesting the way that they're playing with that. I really like the scene, even though the wig is terrible. (laughs) I like the scene where he comes back to send her on some kind of mysterious mission. We don't really know what's going on there. But the way that she like kind of creeps up on him, I think at one point she's actually floating, which was such a cool camera effect, and comes up to him and is obviously like putting the moves on him to i guess like upset his agenda or something or or change the power differential in some way and the way that bruce langley plays that he's uncomfortable completely uncomfortable and i think overpowered mentally by her i just love the non-verbal like tension and back and forth in that scene yeah i totally agree i was super engaged by it I think it sets up nicely that he wants her to do something. I think he blames Shadow for getting his teeth knocked out and he is out to get Shadow. I think that he's sending Bilquis to get Shadow, to like seduce Shadow and consume him. Oh, I like that idea. I did not come up with it myself. I'm not sure how much I buy it, but I really like that. <laughs> it's the only thing that I can think of because at the end we see Bilquis on the bus that's going to the house on the rock. So we know that's where they're all heading. Mad Sweeney told Laura they're going to the house on the rock. So this is where Shadow is going. What we don't know is her motivation. Like, is this her mission that she was given? Or is she like, whatever the mission was, she's like, no, I'm going to Wednesday's thing and I'm signing up with the old gods because fuck this. Like, I'm getting treated badly. See, I definitely interpreted it as her rejecting technical boy and going up to meet up with the old gods. Mm -hmm. But I kind of like your interpretation of like, if the if the technical boy is sending her to deal with Shadow, then it's sort of like more ambiguous. We don't really know what her plan is or whose side she's on, which I kind of like from a narrative standpoint. It could backfire so easily. I mean, technical boy is not the smartest dude, clearly, but <laughs> I feel like... And there's really no way to get at Shadow via a god without sending that god to Wednesday, right? Because Shadow and Wednesday are pretty much inseparable at this point. Yeah, It just seems like there's a a lot of room for this to go wrong for the technical boy. And Wednesday... If that is indeed his plan. Yeah. Yeah. I And if it is the plan, I think it's his plan for exactly that reason. This isn't Mr. World's plan because it's not a good plan. <laughs> Uh, Like you say. Yeah. So I agree with that. And Wednesday talks about her, or I think he's talking about her. This kind of confused me that when Nancy gets done with his story and he goes back to like tailoring the suits and he's asking Shadow, like, do you understand the moral of my story? And he's like, I I don't trust assholes. I don't know. And he's like, no, man, you got to get yourself a queen. (laughs) Are they talking about Bilquis? Are they talking about Wednesday getting Easter? Like, what what, oh. what are they talking about? Is he gunning for Bilquis, or what are they talking about? Huh. 
You know, honestly, I kind of just ignored that part because I didn't understand it at the time. It's confusing, right? But I really like your, I really like your interpretation, though. That yeah, he is saying like, you need to get some like specifically female mystical power on your side. Mm -hmm. Wednesday has spent a lot of his energy and time trying to recruit murder gods or whatever. Right. Your stereotypically strong man gods, and that he needs to branch out a little bit and that there is like something really powerful in the female goddesses actually now that you say it like that i'd like to wrap it back around a little bit because there's a real history and maybe people aren't aware of this i feel like people aren't whenever i bring it up in religion that the further back in time you go the more feminine all mythology becomes like in its orientation So, like, the oldest gods that are human are female, like, universally across all cultures. Like, the very oldest gods are, like... Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The very oldest gods are, like, rocks and, like, bones and stuff. But when you start to get into human shapes, it's always women. Like, we don't have the names of these women, but it's all about like the earth goddess because like think about it what are the priorities of the most ancient people you like we need to eat and and give life yes yeah you need your kids and you need uh your plants and there's like a a real connection between putting (laughs) sorry i'm just still laughing that you need your kids and you need your plants that's right (laughs) (laughs) you Oh my god. New, <laughs> new life motto. That's right. <laughs> it's the two most important things. Uh, you need your kids and you need your plants. You do, man. Because like, there's a connection there. It might not be obvious to modern people where you have a handful of like seeds. I mean, you know, you learn when you're a little kid that a seed will turn into a plant. That's not really an obvious thing. Uh, it's the little wooden bits that are gross when you eat the food there's nothing telling you that if you put that in the ground, it will turn into a plant in the same way that semen inside of a woman turns into a baby. Like there's a connection there between these two things that are not obviously the way that it will turn out that the woman somehow mystically transforms semen into a baby. The ground mystically transforms seeds into plants. So that's kind of where you get your fundamental connection of mother earth this transformative ability and this is not like me that's like an academic truth uh there's a classic feminist thing about uh like reclaiming the word cunt Mm -hmm. in that the word vagina comes from the word like sheath Mm -hmm. um for like a sword so basically like the vagina is defined by like what you put in it and its usefulness as like a carrier Whereas the word cunt comes from, like, the word for, like, a mound of dirt that, like, produces a plant. The origins of the word cunt are actually, like, way more feminist and, like, feminine affirming. I love that. Than the word vagina. I never knew that. I feel like now maybe I should look that up. (laughs) That's uh, crazy. (laughs) Just to double check myself. (laughs) That sounds like Um, an Anglo-Saxon word. So it says... It may have arisen from the Proto-Indo-European root gen-gon, which means like to create or become, as seen in the words gonads, genital, gamete, genetics, gene, 
mm-hmm. or the Proto-Indo-European root, I'm going to say this wrong, Gunna, which means woman. So... Like goneral. Yeah. Okay. So it's similar. And you can see right there, because Indo-European is some of the most ancient language, and that's really where we get a lot of our knowledge about the most ancient religions is from Indo-European philology. Uh, well, I mean, this is super nerdy, you guys. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> this is like how we know this stuff in a lot of ways, because archaeology can only take you so far, but you can trace stuff back like through the language and how it evolved over time as people migrated from the Indus Valley up into the European uh, spaces and across the Middle East and stuff. So when we say Indo-European, that's what we're talking about. So women are associated in the language and in the mythology with uh, the generative properties of uh, creating new people, fertility, and then you associate that with the earth. And so you get the mother earth archetype and that's what the oldest gods are. They're associated with the earth and with sex and fertility and all that kind of stuff. And we've talked about that before. But as you move forward through time, you get more and more male gods. And if you've already associated the earth with a female god, if you're going to start to make sky gods, it just naturally becomes male. And then also like ancient civilizations needed to know when to plant their crops because you can't just put a seed in the ground any old time and have it work. And you would do that according to um, the constellations. And so it seemed like to ancient people that the sky was in charge of the ground's fertility uh, in terms of when plants would rise. And you associate the sky with maleness and you start to evolve this sensibility of men being in charge of women, uh, you know, which it doesn't help that men are generally much larger than women and able to overpower them. And, and so it's like baked in culturally from the ground up, like literally you, you get this misogyny that travels through time and evolves and turns into like a monotheistic God that's in the sky, that's male. And everything is all about the male priests and the male, you know, the male, everything. And you see Bilquis be very, very powerful and like associated with the moon, which of course is also one of the celestial bodies that's associated with female gods. And then as time marches forward, she becomes less and less powerful until at this point, she's under the direct domination of a male god, you know, who is like tied to the economy and tied to the power structure of the globalization so I think the show is like doing some really smart stuff with the way that we're depicting like ancient history, Bilquis's place, and then in modern times, the way that we're dealing with the misogynistic culture and who has the power and why they have the power and how they're using that power. Like all of that stuff is super interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really cool. And so talking about how the goddesses were associated with the earth and how the male gods were associated with the sky, uh, you do have many, many exceptions, right? There's the Zariah sisters who we've already met. So I don't want to characterize it for people that there's like, there's no female gods who are associated with the sky. There's, you know, famous ones like Luna or Cynthia who are, you know, associated with the moon. And then we also have in this episode, Easter or Ostara, who is characterized in the episode. This kind of annoys me, but whatever. She's characterized as the goddess of spring, 
but Ostara is the goddess of the dawn. Oh, because I was actually going to say it's kind of interesting to think of Bilquis and Ostara as sort of like different sides of the same coin. Like one is about sexuality and another is about fertility. They're sort of like different ways of looking at sex. That's true. Um, but that kind of falls apart if she's not actually like a fertility spring goddess. Well, she like, yeah, she becomes... You're not wrong that she's like associated with fertility. It's like this thing that you were talking about in in our first mailbag of Europe being this like landscape of tribes consuming each other over and over and over throughout history and like their religions getting all jumbled up. Ostara originally is like the goddess of the dawn. Her name is like the Indo-European root is the same as the word east in in our language so that's like easter east and the sun rises in the east Mm. that's where all that comes from and her festival is around the vernal equinox or you know like the spring equinox as you know different tribes conquer each other you have to like assimilate the traditions around the spring festival uh you know so she gets associated with eggs which of course are like part of fertility with rabbits which are an extremely fertile animal and so that's like where all of our easter traditions come from and then mother church comes along and says like oh yeah 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 that's when jesus arose and so now we're just going to marry Jesus to your traditions of coloring eggs and roasting rabbits like oh it's all just one thing and it always was one thing and you get this like super bizarre and absurd thing of like a million Jesuses hanging out with Easter which is nuts (laughs) yeah I love the way the show like explicitly addresses the sort of like mishmash way that these holidays were created Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that we finally got to meet a gaggle of Jesuses. <laughs> is it a gaggle? Is it a choir? <laughs> like, what I, are, what's the plural? I don't know. Maybe don't know we should either. ask for listener feedback. What What would you call a group of Jesuses? I do like how guilty Jesus is when they point out that this was originally her her day, and she was like, like he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> What do you think about the Jesuses? Yeah. Is it silly? Does it does it work? I think it works particularly well because of the foreshadowing that we got back in episode three mm-hmm. and because of the way that it really fits in with the world building, right? That like Jesus is so everywhere among so many different cultures, but they all kind of envision him in their own way. And especially in America. Yeah. And so in order for the world building to be consistent, you have to have a gaggle of Jesuses. (laughs) You know, like I almost wish that we had gotten more insight into how they might be different from each other. Mm -hmm. But this episode didn't really have room for that. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess it is, like, mostly played for the joke, right? Because yeah. there's, like, the Jesus sitting on water. <laughs> I love when uh, Laura gets out yeah. of the truck and she goes, Jesus Christ, that was pretty good. I also love that they put in the baby Jesus. Like, you see Mary there, mm. too, nursing the infant Jesus, because so much of Christianity is also built around, yeah, like, Jesus the infant not just Jesus the adult. So I thought that was a really careful, thoughtful inclusion. And then when Astara says, you know, she says something about like, blah, 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 all of the Jesuses that died on the cross and the ones that didn't. I know. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's great. I love that. <laughs> yeah, because with the Protestant religions, they don't have Jesus on the cross. He's always like when they depict the cross, there's no Jesus there. And then Catholics depict him on the cross. And so it's very much like Wednesday says in the episode, however you picture him in your mind, like that's what manifests. I am very glad they didn't have crucifix Jesus at the party. That would have been a real doubt. Well, you do get the one guy holding the jelly beans. The jelly beans go through his hand, which is pretty weird. I think like a rabbit literally shits some jelly beans at one point. Yeah, I love that too. Yeah, that that like, of course, like our holidays are like so sanitized Mm -hmm. and commercialized, right? Like it's not a real experience in a lot of ways and so of course there wouldn't be rabbit shit but if you have rabbits you have to have rabbit shit so we'll just like make them (laughs) jelly beans instead (laughs) yeah while we're talking about easter i did want to call out Kristen chenoweth who plays easter and i thought she did a really great job oh yeah i loved her too she was great i was so surprised i i heard that she was cast and the first thing that comes to mind because i have little kids is a Disney movie that she was in called The Descendants, where she plays the main villain. I was like, oh, that's who's Easter? But she knocked it out of the park. I thought she was great. Yeah, I have no previous experience with Kristen Chenoweth. um, So I had basically no expectations coming in, but I thought she was awesome. She holds her own with Wednesday. And uh, every scene she's in, she's really, really fantastic. Yeah. I am so trying to avoid talking about Shadow because I'm not happy about it and I don't want to sit here and complain about the show, but I feel like we got to deal with it. This episode turns Shadow into a dummy. I don't... By dummy, do you mean... An idiot? By dummy, do you mean idiot or like a crash figurine? (laughs) Both? (laughs) I don't know. He's... It's it's not good what's going on with him. I don't know, man. Yeah, it, no, I think it's it's kind of like what we talked about before, right? Like they took an emotional transition that would have been powerful and was powerful like the first time, but it's like every time you hit that note, it's diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. So now might be a good time to talk about some listener feedback that we had which is actually not even about this episode right we're recording this before episode seven even airs but i feel like it's shockingly relevant given that yeah so this feedback is from h con who's at spawn of oz on twitter um and he says where is the outrage at wednesday for manipulating shadow putting him in scenarios of extreme danger and apparently not being entirely upfront about what is going on instead everybody loves wednesday And if you're taking on such topics, perhaps you guys can find some time to address what the show is not doing with Shadows, if the writers can devote so much energy developing storylines and characterizations for Laura and Sweeney that never took place in the book. Perhaps they can do the same to give Shadow more agency and something else to do rather than take a backseat to Wednesday as they meet up with other gods. Shadow appears to be consistently manipulated, lied to, and led on by people in his life. And while even his dead wife is able to put two and two together swiftly, Shadow still seems to be running in place regarding how he is adjusting to his new reality. This makes him look slow compared to the white characters on the show. And I find that more disturbing than any overblown talk about Laura's white privilege. And so I guess this is part of a a longer message about Laura, but we're going to wait to address that until a later episode. But so I was thinking about that and then also thinking about, unsurprisingly, 
an article from Black Girl Nerds, you know how much we love them. So this is by guest blogger Courtney Anderson, and the title is The Innocence That Is American God's Shadow Moon. The show's protagonist, Shadow Moon, is the kind of character I can't help but fall for. Sweet, well-meaning, and endlessly confused. Shadow is a kind of character I've hardly, if ever, seen on TV. A naive, almost innocent, in quotes, black man. Black people are pretty much never allowed to be seen as naive or innocent. With a few exceptions, we're always the hardened, sometimes scary characters that exist to pass on wisdom to our white counterparts. We're the street smart ones, the ones who have to be more mature than our white counterparts. We're the functional sidekicks who are around to expose our white friends to a harsher real world. Shadow is not the hardened black man who exists to guide his white friends. Shadow is the one who needs guidance. And all of the white people around him are the ones who are sketchy and hardened. To me, Shadow's characterization turns a trope on its head. That's interesting. Um, So I think, yeah, I think both the article and the tweet have really interesting perspectives. I think they're somewhat incompatible with each other, Mm -hmm. but I kind of think they're still both valid interpretations. Totally. This is part of the problem with a lack of diversity, where Shadow is really the only black guy in the entire story. And so that puts a lot of pressure to like, he represents all of blackness in America in this story because he's like alone. Uh, is that fair though? Cause I feel like we also have Anubis and Ibis. I mean, Shadow's definitely the most prominent black man on the show, but like when, as soon as you start tallying up the sort of like, side characters anubis ibis nancy Mm -hmm. i mean like i totally understand that argument and i think it applies in a lot of situations but i feel like if any show is not going to fall into that it might be this one sure i mean the counter argument to that right is all are all of those characters also you know easily led uh naive and All of them are canny, except for Shadow, right? Like, Mr. Nancy is super tricky. He's right on top of it. Anubis is very, like, kind of scary and powerful. And, you know, Ibis is really smart. But, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of whiteness around Shadow in particular. Like, he doesn't really interact with Anubis or Ibis. Yeah, no, and there's, like... There's a lot of stuff that we're kind of skipping over, I think, about Laura as a white woman and how she fits in with her relationship with Shadow. And, like, Mm -hmm. just to give you guys um, a little bit of a heads up, we're, like, punting on that for now, but we're going to have a whole special episode later where we just talk about Laura. It's a complicated enough conversation that it would almost, like, devour this whole episode if we really gave it the time that it deserves yeah i think it's a viable read of shadow's character to associate his personality with his race in the way that he's being written we know that the writer staff is all white people there's nobody behind the scenes who can speak from their own experience and put that into the character I am looking at this all with a side eye because I don't think it's great the way that Shadow's being written. And it puts me in mind also of the feedback that we got from Mandy where in the first couple of episodes, Shadow is like he is in the book and her read on him is that he's very, very smart, but very quiet. 
And I think that you can reach out of that way, especially in the premiere, even though he's like out of his depth, he's being very cautious. But in this episode, that's not the case at all. Like he meets Easter and he's blushing. He's got kind of a stupid grin on his face the whole time. When he sees Laura at the end, he has like the same stupid grin. And I'm like, is this a supernatural effect of Easter's mansion? Like, like, why is this <laughs> happening to Shadow? It's very strange. No, that's so true. And I feel like in the early episodes, Shadow and Wednesday felt more equally matched on an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. And there was more of like a sparring going on. Absolutely. And he tries, he, you know, he confronts Wednesday at the beginning of this episode, but it just, it kind of goes nowhere. And then by the time they get to the mansion, he's really just being led around by the nose for the rest of the episode. And I feel like his, that's part of the reason why his moment of faith kind of falls flat for me is it doesn't build enough once we get to the mansion. His agency just seems to be co-opted more and more. It's not good. I wonder how much of it is like really fundamentally a character problem or a character problem that stems from a structure problem. Shadow had stuff to do early on in the season and then they know where they want him, but he doesn't have anything to do in the meanwhile. So they're just having him spin his wheels and basically stall. And that sort of stalling ends up making him look really stupid and and end up repeating these same notes over and over again. That's a fantastic point. And I agree with you. I think and I think that's a problem with this episode that it's very busy setting up the primary conflict for the second season the character arcs become secondary to, you know, setting up the board for the next the season. Board. Exactly. I like we yeah. had the same metaphor in mind. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and so in some sense, I feel like the size of this problem really depends on sort of where they go from here, right? Because uh-huh. if in season two, Shadow becomes much more active and has a lot more agency and is able to use some of that cleverness that we saw earlier on in season one, when you're watching it through and you know where it's going, this feels a lot less problematic knowing where he's ending up. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe it just gets worse and worse. I hope not. Um, Let's I think hope we'll have not. to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hope not. <laughs> I think we're right to point this out, though. That <laughs> this... It's a problem here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I also think that the sort of counter perspective to that, that Shadow is being really painted as sort of like innocent and naive and like kind of an adorable way, and that's not a portrayal that Black characters get in media very much, mm-hmm. is also kind of, I find it interesting, and it's not something that I ever would have come up with. Me neither. Um, I'm glad that sh- she wrote that. Yeah. It's in, I'm trying to think of it in light of this episode because I feel like his innocence and trust increases, you know, from the beginning of the episode to the end. But I'm not sure if that's because anybody in the writer's room is kind of like, let's invert this, this racial trope that's in fiction. I don't know if I buy that. I think it's a good observation. Yeah. But I don't think it's motivating the fiction. I think it is plot and it's not malicious, but it's a side effect of misplaced motivations in the storytelling. They're not taking Shadow's uh, emotional arc across the entire season 
into consideration. It really hurts this episode. I hope you're right about like uh, watch the premiere of the second season and I'll be like, you fixed everything. It's great now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how they do that, but <laughs> but I hope they do. Yeah. Well, okay. So I think this might be a good time to talk about sort of like how this episode does or doesn't feel like a season finale. Mm-hmm. The climax, right, is this sort of rap battle between media and Odin. And I'm just, yeah, like, I feel like Shadow is nominally the protagonist of the story. And I wish that he had been more involved in that somehow. Right. Like, I think that is kind of what bothers me more than him being portrayed as stupid is just the fact that, like, yeah, like, he's not involved in the climax at all. There's no arc for him. Like, he, his arc, instead of landing somewhere, just sort of, like, peters out in the middle of the sky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the only role that he does seem to play is that his faith in Mr. Wednesday, in, in Odin, seems to give Odin, like, much more power. And and it's exactly like H. Khan said in his tweet to us that he's his pawn you know like his he just does he's being led by the nose of of mr wednesday you know whatever he wants is what shadow does and it's kind of goes back to that first episode like i said with the coin where he's mr wednesday's slave he gives up his liberty i wish that he was fighting against it more or had yeah like you say more agency it just doesn't it doesn't play right. You know, and I you just brought up something that made me think, because like one of my questions was sort of like, why does Mr. Wednesday even need Shadow? Like what, why did he set up this whole thing? It's a lot of effort to like, you know, screw up a robbery and then send someone to jail right. just so that he can like stand next to you looking sad. Um, And I think you really (laughs) hit the nail on the head, right? Is that he's using him like a faith battery, right? Like, yes, because Shadow as a human can use his belief to power things in a way that Wednesday can't. So he really he's using him like a battery pack, like a power brick. Yep. Because nobody believes in Odin anymore. (laughs) He's he's super old news, right? Not even like pagans believe in Odin. You know, they might believe in some principle uh, that stands behind him of like death and wisdom and you know self-sacrifice and all this stuff but nobody believes in actual odin i feel like if he had revealed himself before this conflict in some way and then walked into the conflict with shadow at his side or at his back and said like now i'm gonna you know knock you down with lightning now i'm gonna threaten you now i'm gonna get my sword out i would have bought that but to have it be in the same moment doesn't feel right to me. It's like you said, all of the focus in that ending is on Wednesday. And we needed a scene where it was just about Shadow and the choice that he was making. And then I think we could have moved into it more successfully. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And this whole thing, uh, this like way of framing Shadow is basically like a battery makes me think so differently about all of the warnings that we've had about Wednesday up until this point. Mm -hmm. People keep saying, you know, like, he's, you know, a con man, like, he's super shady, you don't want to trust him, like, all of that stuff feels much more concrete to me now. Yeah, and I guess, too, it makes me wonder, like, who are we supposed to root for, right? Because, like, I mean, I guess we're 
sympathetic to and rooting for Shadow, but as far as the war between the old and new gods go, like, I mean, I like Ian McShane, but I don't really like Wednesday, and I don't really like the new gods either. Oh, yeah, I don't think you're supposed to. And I think this is actually a pretty successful thing. The new gods want to run the world kind of like a corporation, you know, like the people do their part kind of like employees or something like that, but to serve the interests of management. Yeah. The way that Odin is kind of like assembling his coalition, it's pretty inhumane, right? Like basically the plan is to extort humanity for their food. We won't feed you unless you feed us. This very transactional, and we talked about this last time, this pre-axial kind of um, bereft of morality system of religion. And Odin's pitch to all of these guys is like, wrapped up in the nostalgia of their rule in the old world. That's the way that he gives it to Easter that like, this used to be your day before it got taken by this other guy. And it's so it's not about like building a future. It's about like reclaiming the past, exploiting people. And then the new gods are all about dehumanizing everyone and using them in a system that only perpetuates their own power. So yeah, neither side is the right side. Yeah, and I guess going back to the chessboard metaphor a little bit, like, so what is this episode actually accomplishing, right? It's sort of like, is bringing the players that have been separated back together. It's raising the stakes for Laura, because now we know resurrection isn't an option, Mm -hmm. and she's falling apart. By the way... I loved that her maggots were real maggots and not mealworms. That is like (laughs) one of my weird science pet peeves is just that like anytime there's any kind of insect thing like in X-Files and whatever, it's just in Buffy, it's always mealworms, like no matter what (laughs) it's like supposed to actually be. And those were like actual fly maggots. And I was just like, yes. They were super gross. Uh, It was, I love that moment. Yeah, they're really, really gross. But yeah, sorry. Okay, so we're raising the stakes for Laura. We're amping up the conflict between Wednesday and Shadow, between Sweeney and Laura, between Laura and Shadow. There's like the boss battle. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, did, did did all of that come together for you? No. Is there is there anything that I'm missing? Okay, yeah. <laughs> it does. I mean, you're right about all of those things happening, but it's like, I don't know. It's like putting a, a jigsaw together with a hammer. Like it's it doesn't we we didn't build up to this like it's all there but it's not it doesn't fit together or like it doesn't create a complete picture in any way yeah it yeah yeah there's that idea in storytelling right of the unity of effect that you want to try and drive your story towards one emotional note i don't think that this story achieves that unless the emotional note that you're going for is like damn i can't believe it look at the twist but that's not really that interesting you know yeah i don't want that we talk a little bit about cliffhangers versus game changers Mm -hmm. this feels like it's trying to be a game changer but i can't really say how the rules of the game have actually changed in any way yeah i think you're right this is trying to be a game changer but it plays much more like a cliffhanger i think it wants it both ways 
actually. I don't even think it's a cliffhanger. I think it I think it like doesn't do either. That's yeah, that's what I mean. Like it's trying to do both and it and it doesn't accomplish either of them very successfully because you don't get the sense that like the world has kind of tipped on its side because of what you've learned or you know whatever has happened. And at the same time you don't have this like burning need to find out what happens next, which is you know, how those two things are supposed to work. So it's like, yeah, I was just kind of left kind of with my my hands in the air. Like, what? No, come on. They should have picked one and committed in some kind of stronger way. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I feel like we have to at least mention the reveal that Wednesday did indeed kill Laura. And does her knowing that change anything or have any important impact? I mean, we kind of guessed it. It's good to have it confirmed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it changes much other than kind of giving Laura a laser focus to mess up Wednesday's agenda. And this kind of speaks to what we were talking about last time of why is Wednesday afraid of Laura? I think it's exactly because of this, because he put the hit out on her and he knows if she finds out she's going to be pissed and she is and she's coming for him. So so I guess going back to, to the idea of just like what this episode is accomplishing on some level, it seems like like the thing that this episode is doing is basically there's a bunch of stuff that, has been hinted at, foreshadowed, some characters know, some other characters don't know. And like the one thing that this episode does is get everybody on the same page, reveal all of these secrets, so that then we can have like new conflict for season two. Mm -hmm. But I think where it falls flat is that it's revealing all of these secrets that have been heavily foreshadowed, but because the audience like has pretty much picked up on a lot of it, it's not actually that relevatory and it doesn't do a good job of explaining what those secrets actually mean right so like Lonnie Diane Rich always says the purpose of story is meaning making and like I think that's really where it's failing like a bunch of things are happening but it's just all technical and no meaning Right, right, right. Like this isn't about the high cost of keeping secrets or or something like that where we could play off the theme of it. It's just a bunch of secrets that tick the plot forward and change the motivations of the characters. So it's a big problem. And I think you're right to point it out that it's part of the reason why emotionally we don't get that game changer feeling. I don't know, maybe some people will binge watch it and be like, that was amazing. And we, you know, we're kind of peering very deeply into the story. I think that a story should be able to handle some scrutiny and still deliver emotionally. Other episodes have managed to do it. This one just feels very scattershot. So is there anything else you want to say? I think my only other comment was... I feel like Wednesday running over the rabbits was supposed to mean something, but there were never any consequences for that. And I don't know what he was like. Were the rabbits trying to keep him out? <laughs> um, I mean, Ostara seems genuinely surprised when she sees him at the party. Mm-hmm. And the rabbits are her minions, but it's not like she was mind melding with them and sent them to block his path. Because otherwise, she wouldn't have been surprised when he showed up. Mm-hmm. Is it just like Wednesday's a dick, or <laughs> that's how I took it? Yeah. I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it drew too much attention to itself for how little it actually mattered. Yep, I'll put it that way. That's exactly right. There's no real payoff. 
Yeah, and I feel that way a little bit too about the Jesuses. Like, it's a fine joke, and it does that incremental step of like moving Shadow's faith. He has the brief talk with Jesus about his fundamental nature. And Shadow's like, I just don't think I'm built to believe. And Jesus says, I'm built to only believe. And, you know, you could get like into some kind of metaphorical discussion about modern people and the way that we see the world, but I don't feel like it's earning that discussion. And so for me, the Jesuses don't really pay off. And when it comes to the final conflict, they don't seem to matter at all. They're not fueling the new gods or Easter. And so their presence becomes kind of like this punchline. Even though it's cute, it's not really worth all the effort and whimsy that gets injected into this episode that could otherwise be more dramatic and focused on Shadow and Laura and Wednesday. Yeah, and I guess too, I mean, I feel like as someone who has some like Raven henchmen, Wednesday should be more respectful of like other gods' animal companions. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) I guess this also, and this doesn't, this didn't pay off, right? Now that you talk about the rabbit, it reminds me of the car crash that was caused by a rabbit. Was that on purpose? Was this Easter crashing the truck? Who was that for, though? Like, we, okay, so we find out in this episode that somehow Sweeney and Easter have a connection. It's hinted at, right? Yeah. She owes him a favor, he says. So was crashing the truck part of that? Yeah, I have no comment because I also have no idea. (laughs) But that's a really good point. I'd completely forgotten about Sweeney bribing the rabbit to cause the truck crash. It's got to be connected to this you owe me a favor business, but... Oh. I don't understand. Oh, yeah. So what what is the favor? I mean, this is more set up for season two, I feel like. Here's a new mystery. Stay tuned for more. I like that it's there, that he has leverage with her. So he wasn't just coming down Mm -hmm. here hoping to beg for a favor on her feast day. He like had a good plan. This is a pretty good plan. It's a little convenient, but whatever. Like I can hang in there for that. But yeah, we just don't get enough. And I feel like it's just setting the table. So now it's time to highlight one way that the show surpassed the book and one way that we think the show fail to live up to the book, or just our expectations for good TV in general. So, Alan, what was your biggest disappointment? The scene where we meet Easter in the book, it contains one of my favorite scenes. I'm not going to spoil it here in my disappointment, but when I read the description of this episode and saw that we were going to get Easter, I was like, oh, maybe we'll get that cool, funny scene where like Wednesday talks about religion and stuff. It's one of my favorite things in the book. And uh, it just wasn't here. So I felt its loss keenly. Yeah. So what bothered you this time? (laughs) I feel like I'm not really holding up my end of the bargain on this section because I just haven't had time to read the book at all. So it's hard for me to give insightful things like you. But I'm going to go with Technical Boy's wig. It bothered me so much. I'm still (laughs) thinking about it. Um, (laughs) It's fair. It's pretty bad. uh, Yeah. Okay, so what was your biggest improvement? (laughs) Um, 
I I do like that Wednesday is actually striking back. In the book, there is a whole lot of... It's all just pretty much machinations. There's not a back and forth between the old gods and new gods. It's all just planning and planning and planning until the last couple of chapters. So this has like some really big moments where, you know, he's calling down lightning and people are fighting with each other and some big things happen here. And I think that's pretty cool. I think that's going to keep their audience and grow their audience for the second season. It's a smart way to uh, write the TV show, I think. What did you like? Well, I just wanted to say, um, wow, that was a really great answer. I'm glad you're redeeming the fact that we've kept this section in the show so long. (laughs) Um, I think my favorite addition was just all of the really great Bilquist stuff that we got in this episode. I love fitting her coming to America story into like a more modern history. I mean, I guess we haven't talked about this before, but like her coming to America story is Bilquis the first god who's like decided to move to America? Oh, like she like moves to herself. escape shit going on in her homeland, or is the the woman who we see in the hospital bed? She was on the plane. And Bilkis was sort of like riding along with her. Oh, you now you're blowing my and mind. And that's and now and that's Bilkis's affection for her is because she brought her to America. Oh man! And kind of like got her out of that because we yeah we totally in our whole discussion on Bilkis we didn't even confront that fact that this is the first coming to America story where like we see the god actually traveling with some sort of agency of their own as opposed to just sort of like springing into being on the shores. I don't know. When we were talking about Bilquis earlier, that was one of the things you brought up. Like, how did she get there? Like, none of the immigrant groups to America worship Sheba. Mm-hmm. So you were asking, like, how did she get there uh, if this Iranian woman was in love with her and was worshiping her sort of like indirectly on some level, Bilquis was able to sort of like ride that into America somehow. Crazy. Wow. Okay. Yeah, no, great. I think that just redeemed us keeping this section in the podcast. <laughs> that was way better than mine. What are you talking about? That was awesome. Cool. Um, <laughs> well, before we wrap up, this episode we want to let you know a little bit about our plans going forward so first we're gonna take a couple weeks off let our lives catch up a little bit and then we want to do three more episodes to wrap up this season so first we have another interview with the editor of episodes five and six Stephen Phillipson um, and he's also an editor from Hannibal Um, then second we're gonna have a special lore discussion episode that I kind of referred to before There's been a lot of really interesting conversation about her and very different takes on her character, and we thought it really warranted a separate episode so it didn't completely take over our analysis here in this episode. We'd love to hear your take on Laura as well, so please send us an email with your Laura thoughts, and we'll include... Uh, some of those in the show. And then finally, we'll have an overall season one wrap-up episode where we step back and take a look at season one as a whole. We did that a little bit in this episode, but I think we're really going to go back to the earlier episodes and see how some of that lines up with where we ended up. And then finally, we also have plans for another podcast that we're going to do during the American Gods off-season. We'll probably just have like one season with six or eight episodes, and hopefully we'll have more details about that ready to share 
by the time we're recording the season one wrap-up. We'll definitely let you guys know. Yeah. And so with that, I'm Anya. You can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler, and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com for news and episode reviews. If you'd like to leave us feedback, if you're feeling threatened by a strong woman or you got yourself a queen, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. And join us in a couple weeks for those three wrap-up episodes. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. That's the best way for us to get new listeners. Because we want to fucking hear you say it. So say it. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a creative commons non-commercial share alike license. <laughs>